You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. It's Fed Day, and I couldn't ask for a better team to be here with me. Ed Harrison and Jack Farley. Welcome. Thanks, Ash. Great to be here. So anyone who is tired of sleepy, quiet days in markets, those times have passed. Ed, what are you looking at? How are you parsing what came out of the Fed today? Yeah, very interesting stuff. I think that I'm looking at the 10-year, of course. Uh, because uh, that backed up, yields backed up in general. I think it went to 158.9 before it uh, settled in at 156.2. That's the last figure I have. Um, I'm also looking at places on the curve. I think the five-year is very interesting, uh, and the 530 is also an interesting spread to look at in terms of uh, curve flattening or anything that we can learn from that. And let's talk a little bit about that. You cut out there for a second. I'm not sure what you said at the end, but you were talking about the spread between uh, fives and, and tens. Uh, give us a little bit of a sense of what's happening in the belly of the curve and that's relationship to the front end of the curve. Yeah, so my understanding is that we saw a little bit of curve flattening, uh, which would suggest that, uh, that people are starting to believe there could be a slowdown. Uh, and so irrespective of what's happening at the front end of the curve, uh, that is a bit worrying when you see the curve flattening in the belly of the curve. I would also say that uh, we saw the biggest uh, uptick uh, with the, the five-year. So the five-year ended today up uh, nine basis points, whereas the 10-year only went up uh, six basis points. So right there, there's flattening right there. Um, and then yeah. Uh, the 30-year actually went down uh, marginally. So what you're seeing is is uh, the biggest uh, bulge in the five-year. You could say that this flattening is an indication that at the margin, uh, there's the potential for a policy error. That is, that the, that the Fed is not getting the timing right, that their transition to a more hawkish statement is a suggestion that as they try to navigate the waters, the ceiling charybdis that we were talking about on Monday, yeah. that they don't get it right and that they hit the uh, the, the, the side and, and run aground. Yeah, the five-year was very much in motion. That jump from about, uh, what, 77 bips up to uh, over 90 uh, short term there, like 13, 13 basis points uh, before settling in at 89, uh, really a lot of motion there. Jack, as we bring this camera, zoom it out a little bit here, I mean, economy is booming, inflation is rising, questions about whether that's transient, uh, questions about whether this growth can be sustained. What are you thinking about? What are you looking at in that context? Well, Ash, the moment that stood out to me was a soundbite where Fed Chair Jerome Powell said, look, we have a dual mandate. We're, uh, we have to focus on the other side, which is price stability. So inflation is, for a first time in a while, at least in the purview of Jerome Powell. It, you know, it may not be uh, motivated for, for long. There was a bias towards 
uh, limiting unemployment uh, and prioritizing that over price stability. But you can tell that they clearly are worried. And of course, the, the chart or the, the fact of that is the dot plot, which uh, shows the 18 members of the FOMC um, or what they think uh, basically uh, the federal funds rate should be. And they were markedly higher. And there are a lot of critiques and about, about why that's important. But I think that the market is pricing in that the Fed is definitely thinking about raising rates. And you can see it right there on the dot plot. As to the slight flattening we saw, um, yes, the 10-year the sold off hard, the five-year sold off hard. The two-year, that's where I think you saw the most fireworks because I think that we actually hit um, something like 19 basis points, which was the a uh, the highest that we've been at since June 2020. You know, since then, uh, a real hallmark of this action has been that um, you know rates have been extremely low at the yield, and even in the money market funds, some things go negative. So, yeah, a lot a lot to get into. But Ash, what did you make of the dot plot? Well, you know, it's interesting thinking about what the dot plot is, what it does, and why it's significant. So, the dot plot, as you mentioned, is 18 dots that represent the FOMC. Uh, members voting and non-voting alternates. So when you look at that chart, look at that dot plot, what you see is a series of dots uh, that represent where the each individual member of the FOMC believes interest rates are going to be at a given point in time. So when people say, you know, the median estimate uh, is that we're going to have two rate hikes by 2023, what that's saying is that the number at which there are an equal number of dots above and below uh, is at that point, suggesting that we're going to be at 50 basis points up from the zero uh, to 25 basis point federal funds target that we have today. But this is something that is is very much uh, an abstract uh, entity that represents what individuals think about particular policies. Now, again, important to note, 18 members, only 12 voting members. So it's done so that you can see a weighting of the constituents uh, along various points because they're rotating in and out. Even Jay Powell in the questions uh, actually talked about this uh, and said, like, you know, look, the, the, these dots don't represent a plan. They don't represent a consensus. This represents individual opinions about where we may be at a particular point in time. And of course, as we know, they want to stay data dependent. So if there are changes in the data, there are changes in the functioning of the economy. These are things that can be adjusted. But I'd really like to throw back to Ed uh, and have him jump in and give his insight on what he thinks about the dot plot and the significance or potentially uh, the lack of significance there. Yeah, uh, in, the interesting comments, Ash, because you and I both know, we were talking before we went on camera, that these, uh, these dots, they're not predictive at all. That they, in the past, they've been shown to not be predictive. And as a result, uh, you have to question what they really mean. Uh, what I would say is that what they mean in terms of the market is, is they're giving the market uh, forward guidance. They're telling the market what we, the Federal Reserve, believe is the appropriate uh, monetary stance going forward. And then you can back into you know, uh, the timetable based upon that. So it's the Fed's best way, the most discernible way that the Fed has to be able to tell other people, this is what's going to happen, uh, and this is the timetable that we see it happening. Yeah. Uh, Jack, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I, I, uh, I think perhaps, Ed, it doesn't matter. The, the dot plot is not as significant as some in the media are, are pounding their chests about, but I do think it matters in, in a 
very fundamental way because you know a, a phrase that I'm sure both of you will be familiar with is that the bond market is the truth. You know, Raoul says that a lot, and it's namely saying that equity investors don't really know the the path of the economy. There's a lot of speculation, but the bond market is really pricing in the future growth of the economy, and generally it gets things right. Well, what do bond markets? Uh, trade off of growth expectations, of course, inflation expectations, but also Fed funds futures, which is you know derivatives for what is the future Fed fund rate going to be, and what do those trade off of? Largely the dot plot. So I think that the dot plot uh, does matter to some degree. And I mean, look, in March of twenty, uh, in March of this year, the last FOMC meeting, you had eleven out of the eighteen members say that in twenty twenty two, excuse me, in twenty twenty three, the uh, uh, Fed funds rate would be stuck between zero and 0 0.25. Now there are only five. And there are two people who think that the Fed funds rate could be as high as 1.5 or, or 1.75. So I think that you know you, you could see the bond market repricing uh, this and, and, and you know the daisy chain would, would unwind a little bit. So it's not great for bonds. Do you know what one of the yeah, understated so reasons why the uh, dot plot is so important is? Because you can show it on television. You can show a chart. <laughs> that implies a sense of meaning and coherence uh, over something that is incredibly unpredictable, that statistical analysis shows when you do the regression analysis, the correlations are very weak, uh, but you can show it on television and you can scratch your chin and you can say meaningful sounding things about it. Yeah, I, I agreed. And you know, the, at the, bo the bottom line here is, is that there's no interest rate lever for the Fed. And mm -hmm. so they have the forward guidance lever. They're using the forward guidance lever. The dot plot is the anchor of the forward guidance lever. They're telling you with the dot plot, this is what we think is appropriate at these specific times in the future. And we can uh, use that in order to understand how the Fed is going to react to data based upon that. So right. that's all they can do when they're at the zero lower bound. If we were at 5% interest rates, they could raise or lower interest rates, but they can't do that now because they've run out of bullets. So this is the Fed essentially telling you we've run out of bullets, but you know there are some other things that we can do. I was talking to David Rosenberg and to Peter Bullard about this. This is an interview that's going to come up. I call it the rumble in the jungle. Uh, the, the, it's the inflationista against the deflationista. And we were talking about the fact that the Fed's run out of bullets. Uh, what else are you supposed to do? Uh, I'm sure there are more 13-3 programs that we can be that can be rolled out, Ed. <laughs> Listen, well, you know, speaking, it is interesting that you would say that because right before we came on, we were looking at the 12 voting members of the Fed, of the FOMC, and the six non-voting members of the FOMC. And yeah. one of the non-voting members of the FOMC, if you look him up, Dave, uh, Eric Rosengren. The, the thing that you see that he's noted for in the, in the very recent past before they had their uh, silent period is as uh, making it seem as if when they start to taper, that they're going to taper uh, uh, housing-backed bond purchases first. So Eric Rosengren, he was speaking uh, and saying that uh, maybe it's not going to be 80-40, maybe it's going to be 80-20. Instead, so if the, you go from 120 bond purchases, 120 billion to 100 billion, it will be all in the mortgage-backed security arena. So when we think of the uh, the timetable being moved forward, 
and I would say that, therefore, you have to think what's going to be moved forward. Uh, is it going to be the time between now and the taper? Is it going to be the, the, the period of the taper? Or is it going to be the time between when you finish tapering and you start raising rates? So those right. are the three periods that we have to think about. Likely, it's going to be the time period, at least in part, between now and when the taper begins. And when that taper begins, potentially, it's going to be in the MBS market. So to the degree that we're thinking about the plot, we should be thinking about the dot plot and what Eric Rosengren is saying with regard to uh, MBS. Yeah, so it's the constituency of that of the balance sheet and the timing uh, of what the taper looks like. 80 billion in treasury bonds per month, 40 billion in agency debt, the mortgage-backed security debt uh, per month, and what that tapering and what the constituency looks like. Ed, one of the things that struck me as very interesting is sort of media theater dot plot stuff to the side. Uh, Jay Powell opened up his remarks by talking about adding powerful support. Uh, he talked about bond buying and continued uh, low rates. He talked about this in the context of, you know, effectively having an accommodative monetary policy, which we still have. This is important for people to understand. The monetary policy is still incredibly accommodative at this moment relative to the neutral policy rate. It is still acting as a gas pedal and not a brake. And then he made the case, I thought, uh, in a very subtle way for this argument about the temporary aspect of inflation. He talked about near-term supply constraints, supply bottlenecks, hiring difficulties. This is something that would be would be supportive of the general thesis that there is a temporary frictional inflation in the market right now uh, because in the broader economy, uh, because of the rehiring. But then he hedged that bet to a certain extent when he talked about uh, that the fact that inflation could be higher and more persistent than we expect, that's a direct quote, uh, and said, if inflation is higher, we're prepared to adjust our stance on monetary policy, meaning to either slow the withdrawal of accommodation or presumably based on that language, perhaps increase again. Right, yeah, so essentially, uh, inflation uh, is not dead as part of their mandate, he's saying, and uh, we're looking at it. But no one knows the, uh, where inflation is going to be. They just have a stance, but he's warning us that if their stance is wrong, potentially they could be behind the curve. So I think that that's the, the hidden message in that. Maybe Jack has some thoughts there. Well, when you say behind the curve, do you mean yield curve control? No, I mean that uh, the that if inflation... Uh, it picks up and it, uh, faster than they think, and it's m less transitory than they think, then they're forced to remove accommodation more quickly than they had anticipated, which would mean that they're behind the curve. Their present stance today it was wrong, and now they have to adjust that stance, and potentially they have to mash on the brakes uh, more aggressively than they had thought. Uh, and that's where the potential for a policy error comes into play which is why I've mentioned that the five-year was the, the thing that, that rolled off the most. It went up uh, the most yield, and you saw flattening from five to 30. That was pretty significant. It was about 11 basis points. Yeah, and this is the challenge, Ed, is that you're, in a certain extent, as I said yesterday with Tony Greer, driving by looking in the rearview mirror. We won't know whether this is a temporary bout of inflation that's caused by frictional uh, supply and demand mismatch factors and near-term constraints until we see further data. And at that point, uh, we will have either been 
uh, mashing on the gas too hard by being too accommodative, or we'll need to withdraw that. So it is, as you've said so many times before, the Scylla and Charybdis. One final point that I wanted to throw your way, Ed, because I really want your opinion on this. So where the rubber re meets the road here, uh, where we are in the economy, where we are in, in financial markets, it's really about the dual mandate, both sides of it. It's prices, it's inflation, and it's jobs. The other thing that Jay Powell mentioned that I thought was so important that I'd really like to hear your take on is LFPR. This is the labor force participation rate. It is the Civ part series at the St. Louis Fed Fred database where you can see it. It peaks, uh, by the way, the first important thing to say is this is rolled over since the year 2000. Uh, the 2000 era peak was at about 67% labor force participation. Prior to the COVID crisis, we were at 63%, uh, so three points lower, uh, three to four points lower on that. We went from 63% on LFPR at worst down to 60%. It's recovered roughly one third to one half. That means there are people who have withdrawn from the labor force very, very rapidly. This is not what a demographic retrenchment in the labor force looks like. Far too rapid, the slope of that curve far too steep to the downside. What do you make of the labor situation in regard to that rate? Uh, hidden employment. So what uh, Powell was saying is, is, is that uh, clearly there are some people who've just retired early. And uh, um, as a result, you know, demographic forces are at play. Uh, let's say they were retired two years early or three years early over uh, two or three years. Uh, that's anomaly will go away, that early retirement. That's partially related to the pandemic. Uh, but beyond that, there is still slack in the labor force uh, because that rate has gone down so precipitously but not come up enough. To me, it suggests, as it did to Jay Powell, that there is still slack. And what they've seen right. before, when they talk about um, you know, uh, what is a uh, an a, a, a full employment level that we were able to get further and further down in terms of unemployment, and suddenly, you know, people started re-entering the, the workforce uh, yeah. late in the cycle. That's what happened at the end of the last cycle, and Jay Powell mentioned that today in the presser. And so, what he's saying is, is, is that we believe the same thing will happen again, and that makes a lot of sense. So I think that labor force participation rate, that it's low um, and it will go up given uh, time. Ed, one final point on the labor market, the jobs market, uh, the U38, the official total unemployment rate is at 5.8%, uh, which is still no great shakes. This is still consistently elevated above the baseline. The U6 rate, this is the total number of unemployed, uh, including those who are marginally attached to the labor force, uh, is it? over 10% at 10.2%. So you have uh, far lower than normal than would be expected from ordinary demographic roll-off in the LFPR. And then you have the official uh, U3 rate as well as the unofficial U6 rate looking significantly elevated. That's not a pretty picture. Now, look, we've recovered consistently here uh, up from a, 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 a peak at 13% in May of 2020, looking at the data that I see in front of me right now on the U3 rate. So considerable improvement, but boy, by historical standards, these are still not fully employed labor markets. Yeah, we're, we're not anywhere close to full employment in my view. The interesting bit uh, about just putting it all together, what happened today, 
is that when you look at uh, the so-called interest rate toggle from an equities perspective, you have the Dow down uh, three quarters of a percent, you have the S&P down half a percent, and then you have the NASDAQ down a quarter of a percent. So it's we're back to the, the whole uh, nexus where uh, interest rates going up hurt uh, reopening uh, cyclical stocks, uh, industrials more, you know, the Dow type stocks, and they hurt uh, the NASDAQ less. I found that interesting uh, because when before when we were talking about the interest rate toggle, it was really that when interest rates went up, uh, actually, that should be negative for uh, for tech. Right. What I think was happening there is 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 actually the um, the flattening of the yield curve that we're seeing in in play. So when the five thirties flattened by eleven basis points, basically what it's telling you is is that there's the potential for the hitting running the ground in, in the whole Silicaribdis thing, and you want to get the growthiest stocks that you can in that scenario. Uh, and so therefore, tech wins. Uh, we're back to the old paradigm where. Uh, right. growth over value wins. That's that's my interpretation of uh, how the market shaked out today in terms of the bond market, thinking about employment, and, and also thinking about uh, the equity market. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Such an important point uh, when we look at the sector rotation uh, through the lens of uh, select sector spiders, for example, uh, we can see XLK, that's the technology select sector spider off uh, about half a percent today. Consumer staples, uh, a bigger loser, minus 1.33%. That's XLP. Yeah, so uh, we're seeing some uh, some incipient rotation back into uh, growth stocks. To me, that speaks to downside risk from a second half uh, underperformance for the economy and the potential that the Fed could accelerate that uh, by... Um, you know, tightening into uh, a deceleration of the economy. Jack, jump in. I know you have something to say. Yeah, well, I think it makes sense. If 30-year rates stay roughly range-bound on a day where the 10-year surges almost 10 basis points, it would make sense that the high-duration stocks, the stocks like Tesla, where, you know, most of its profits are going to be well in the future, are going to stay put, roughly. And, you know, that would be... Uh, I actually think that's that's consumer discretionary, which was the only sector that was up 16 basis points. The ones that took it on the chin today were utilities, as you say, and consumer staples. You know, uh, a, a water plant or a, an energy plant or like, you know, selling toilet paper. That's not exactly a growth business. So, uh, you know, not surprising that they uh, were, were down the most today. Interestingly, I did know is that um, ARKK, which, you know, uh, the ARK, which consists of the super growth stocks, that did not fare super well. So it it could be a point, sort of an, an ennui, that you know this is not a great time to own bonds, and if the yield curve everywhere goes up, that's not great for the super super high duration stocks. Right. Good point. But, but Very I, can I, I mean, if you guys have something on the equities, by all means, go. But I want to. But did you make of any sense of the commodity action? Because Ash, in your interview yesterday with uh, Tony Greer, he said that the metal traders will have to have their fingers on the pulse. We'll have to be ready. Um, you know, if there's some tightening. And that's exactly what we saw. 
And I look at copper and nickel fell 4% um, apace. And those are um, commodities which have been red hot, but have recently uh, encountered some steam recently. Um, gold down 2% at 1821 per ounce. Oil was a little bit more resilient, uh, barely moved 40 basis points. But uh, yeah, what, what do you guys think of the price action, either in commodities or if you want to go back to equities? I honestly think that it, it, it definitely supports the thesis that there's a there's increasing risk that we move from what Darius Dale calls the reflation quadrant to the deflation quadrant. Uh, and that what it's saying is, is, is that all this inflation that people were talking to is actually transitory. It's all rolling over. Commodities, uh, it was mostly in commodities anyway, lumber led. Now we're seeing it in copper rolling over. We're seeing it in other commodities, gold and silver aren't reacting. And, uh, you know, uh, technology is now bid. All of that together suggests that the, at the margin, uh, downside risk for the economy in the second half is increased. And if you want to give it a political lens, the reason it's increased is because the Democrats, even though they want to pour it on, for the, the midterms, uh, you know, they, they have to do reconciliation. Joe Manchin has basically said that I'm not going to let you guys pour it on. Uh, we, we have to do something that is more centrist and that limits the amount of stimulus that uh, the Democrats can put into play. And peak yeah. stimulus is, is, is in the rearview mirror now. So once we get to the fall, we roll off a lot of the pandemic unemployment assistance. We're not going to have a massive in infrastructure bill. You know, where there is there is downside risk in terms of the economy rolling over. So I think at the margin, the the markets understand that. Right. And that could be bad for bonds for two reasons. One, because, you know, there's not enough money in the economy or as much money because there's uh, less stimulus. And obviously, then, um, you know, if there's not a lot of growth, you want to own a greater percentage of bonds. But also to fund the stimulus, fewer bonds will be issued. So there won't be a supply glut that we've been seeing. Sorry, Ash, I interrupted you. No, no, I was just going to add to that, to Ed's point on the politics, that Joe Manchin really is the kingmaker at this point in the Senate. And it really is going to be interesting to see uh, what a very divided Democratic Party between that position and some of the uh, folks who are further to the left think and how that's going to get resolved, because it really is, to me at least, a very much an open issue, ideologically a very different perspective. And I was just going to add, big loser of the day on my commodities board here uh, is LME Copper. Looks like it's off uh, 4%. Uh, and you know, to give a, a bit of context for that, uh, gold uh, off, uh, I think, one and a half, COMEX Gold. Mm. Yep, yeah. That's also risk off if you want to, you know, it's, it's never good to interpret uh, mac macro regimes from one day's trading, but I mean, you know, copper's down more than gold. But it is, but it is pricing based on macro events today, right? I mean, this yeah, isn't yeah. like this isn't like a, you know like a copper mine somewhere in Bolivia. This is literally coming off of what came out of the Fed. So obviously, definitely right. It's always difficult to price on a single day or to draw broad conclusions. But it certainly looks like this trading is about macro action. Yeah, definitely. You can see like a huge fall off right around when the. FONC came out. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I want to ask a question. Ed, do you think that the party is over in terms, you know, for the past over a year, it's just been buy stocks, sell puts, you know, short bonds. It's just been risk on, risk on, risk on. It's been a great party. Do you think the party's over? Or is it slow? I, I think we're in the interregnum. Uh, you know, I think last year when we had the reopening rally, 
I said that uh, September, October was sort of a, a pivot point. Uh, and we could go higher from there if we passed the test. We did pass the test and we went higher. We w in fact, we passed the test with flying colors in November, especially with the vaccine, and we went much higher. Uh, I think we're at a similar point now uh, with the reopening, with the full reopening, uh, where we're coming up on a period where we're going to know much more exactly whether or not inflation is transitory, whether or not we've reached peak stimulus, and uh, you know whether or not all of that pent-up demand that people are talking about is actually going to continue to be a factor. Uh, all of those three things will be coming to a head uh, at the end of Q2 and the beginning of Q3. Yeah. Um, we are about halfway in here at this point, and no surprise, the questions are absolutely lighting up. Uh, let's hit some of these questions uh, and talk a little bit about what's happening. The first one comes to us uh, from, I hope I'm saying this right, Diamet Das. The question is for Ed, why did the market reverse direction today? Yeah, uh, it's one of those things that uh, I, I know that Ash, uh, he's big on this. We have no idea, right? I mean, it's all confabulation. If you if you know uh, why the market moved up or down, unless it's, it's completely obvious because of a statement by the FOMC or, you know, a, 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 some, something that was remarkable, it's anyone's guess. So I have no idea. Did he mean, though, that reverse as in why did it crash or, you know, flash crash, let's say, or why did it go back up? In, at like why did it go back PM? up? Why yeah. did it go back up? If you look at the chart, like of the S&P, you see that at about 1400 hours around two o'clock when the statement comes out, it it hits a trough uh, around, it uh, looks like around 445 and then reverses. I mean, as Ed said, it's all confabulation. I'll throw one out. My own theory uh, was that some of this just has to do uh, with the personality of the Fed chair. There's something about Jay Powell that seems very reassuring and stable. Now, I'm not talking about policy here. I'm just talking about the personality of the guy who is delivering the speech today. Uh, he was did a very strong job with answering questions. Uh, he has uh, an air of kind of humility about him. He seems very empathetic. Uh, he doesn't sound like a Harvard University professor who's lecturing from up high. He sounds like he's open to data. Now, again, this is all kind of a, a, almost a, a very soft aspect of it. Maybe you could call it theatrics even, but it was a very strong performance in terms of, I thought, his delivery of the speech and his engagement with the reporters. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So let's move on here to some more questions. This is a really interesting one that comes to us from Prius Omega. Uh, and uh, a question that's been coming up uh, for the last few days is, could you help us interpret the response uh, to the reverse repo market? And I would throw one more out there, uh, which is the IRR uh, mechanical adjustment that got made today, a uh, 15 basis point adjustment coming out of this meeting, uh, sort of made at the end with very little fanfare. Uh, Jay Powell talks about it as a mechanical adjustment to maintain rates. Any thoughts on either of those, Ed? Yeah, I don't have any thoughts there. Uh, I know that... Uh... I'm looking through my uh, my notes here uh, that um, uh, Pedro da Costa, he was telling me, he's a, uh, a reporter over at uh, MNI, that uh, the New York Fed gave this announcement the other day, the New York Fed undertakes certain small value open uh, market transactions from time to time for the purpose of testing operational readiness to implement existing and potential 
policy directives from the Federal Open Market Committee, uh, end quote. So that they released, uh, uh, Pedro uh, tweeted this out uh, 23 hours ago. I think that this is a lead up to what you're talking about. You know, it's, it reminds me a little bit of the when uh, watching paint dry stuff that the, the Fed was talking about. And also uh, with regard to the, the repo market uh, meltdown that we saw a couple of years ago. Yeah. The, the truth of the matter is, is that we're dealing with a system uh, that's we don't really understand uh, the mechanics of the system entirely. When when the Fed is pumping money into the economy, pumping reserves into the economy, massive amounts of excess reserves, we don't really understand how the mechanics work. Because before 2008, there were no excess reserves. The, if there were, they were minuscule. And now, uh, you know, we're awash in reserves. So we're, we're kind of learning as we go uh, where the, where the problems lie. And so that's that's how I take the statement. And did that highly technocratic statement that you just read uh, add any clarity for you? No, not not at all. But it's just it's <laughs> it's basically what they're trying to say is it's like watching paint dry. They're trying to say, no problem, we got this, right? Uh, but we know that 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 isn't always what's happened in the past. That yeah. bad things have happened. I started chuckling immediately when you read it, just from the, the tone of the language says precisely that. Nothing to see here, folks. Move along, move along. Exactly. Uh, speaking of clarity, Ed, I know we have some big news today. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, the, the elephant in the room for the three of us while we're going through this is that no one knows that uh, today is my last Real Vision daily briefing because I'm going to be moving on shortly uh, from Real Vision and uh, so uh, this is it, uh, you know, uh, the three of us, we're, we're in our last day. Um, I, it just uh, coming out of talking about the Fed, it's really hard to, uh, to talk about that. But I do, I have a few things to say, um, you know, thank yous that I want to give to people who have made my life here amazing. You know, Real Vision's a great place. I love uh, what we do. I love what I've done here and uh, uh, what you guys are going to continue to do. Um, I first want to just uh, give a shout out to some of the people that uh, the viewers never see on camera or haven't seen on camera. First, the guy who's shooting this video right now, who's on this call, there are three of us. There are actually four of us on the call, three that you see. Peter Cooper, he's the guy who you don't see. I want to give a shout out to him. I want to also thank uh, Nick Correa, who... Uh, Every other week is the, is doing the exact same thing. And then the producers, Nico, Brian, Carmen, who helped keep the trains running on time in a very big way. And, of course, our global head of uh, operations and production, uh, who owes me two drinks, by the way, I might add, in case you're watching this, Audrey. Um, <laughs> and my, uh, my final thanks, of course, goes to uh, the people who are on camera as well, Jack Hollywood Farley and Ash Bennington, a.k.a. Billy Ray Valentine. Um, <laughs> my former partner in crime, Roger Hurst, who we haven't seen for a long time. And of course, Rao Powell. Um, and, and, and then finally, I would say thanks to all of you viewers and listeners for your patronage, your feedback. You've made me a better person. You've made RV a better platform. Uh, I'm, I'm going to miss you all. Jack. Yeah, I, well... I just have to say, Ash, the, our 
the uh, transition from talking about one of the driest subjects in finance, like hardcore finance, reverse repo, IOER, to just smack in the face. We just smacked our viewers in the face with his bomb. So if you if you loved deflation and you loved Ed Harrison, you had a bad day today. Uh, you know, you thought your heart was broken at, at 440. Just wait. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I will, you know, I've, I've known for about a week and I was uh, stunned and heartbroken because Ed, you are just are, I, I don't, you know, it'll be very hard uh, to, to continue on doing this without you. I, you know, I view you as a mentor and I think a lot of people who are as viewers also look at you as a leading light. Um, but I, I understand, you know, you're, you're moving on to a different place. Um, yeah. Uh, Ash, what do you got to say? I mean, Lewis Winthorpe the third, uh, opposite my Billy Ray Valentine, man, we've had an incredible run here and, uh, it's been great. By the way, I'm looking at the comments, uh, right now on YouTube. Going ballistic. Yeah. Yeah. Just overwhelming outpouring. And it's, it's going to be a great loss, Ed, to not have you on the show. I think, uh, people may know, or they may not know that you were, uh, the prime mover behind coming up with this show. You created the idea. Uh, this was your brainchild during the darkest days uh, of the COVID crisis, uh, and you were able to come up with this incredible idea to get this on the air so that we could be responsive to daily market cycle events, respond to our subscribers and viewers' questions, uh, and it's uh, it's just been an incredible pleasure to do this with you, and, um, and we know that when you move on from here, you're going to do great things, and I'm going to be reading you wherever you land. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Ash. And uh, you guys, you, you get you got to keep it going. Keep the magic happening. Uh, as we as we talk about this, I think the uh, you know since this is a macro show, this is a macro house uh, RV. The the question should be, you know, so if I'm leaving, what the hell am I thinking about the economy? Right. I think before we uh, we got on, we were saying, yeah, why don't you give us your deep dive or your semi deep dive? I don't know if you can call it deep. Uh, into what I think is happening. Um, so maybe we can talk about that for the last uh, minutes of, of uh, this RVDB. What do you guys? That sounds great. Ed, let me throw out two user questions for you first, by the way. Two of our viewers have asked, uh, Tom, Tom, did Jay Powell do this to you? And CG warns, <laughs> had better not end up at the Fed. <laughs> that would be great. I love that. That is good. Yes. No Fed action for me. I'm sorry. Uh, so please, we were going to talk a little bit more about your deep dive, your view of what's happening. Kind of, I would love to hear actually the big picture. Uh, you know, timing be damned. Here we can run a little bit late today. I would love to hear uh, your big picture view of how we got to where we are now, how you think about where we are now, and where we're going in the future. Yeah, so I have five lines that I wrote out uh, to sort of as crib notes for what I'm thinking about. Uh, and so you guys interrupt as I go through some of these. I think that, you know, line number one that I wrote is I'm a deflationist at heart, meaning that I think that demographics, debt, uh, and deflation, the three Ds, are the predominant secular pattern and that this whole uh, inflationist uh, uh thing that we're going through as a result of the pandemic is temporary. So I do believe in the whole transitory narrative to a large degree. Um, at the same time, let me say that I think inflation can be an issue, and it, and it is an issue right now, even if it's transitory. Um, 
the housing market in particular, asset price inflation is one of those places that we're seeing inflation. That's important. Uh, you know, car prices going up, that's important. It's also important in terms of food and energy because that affects people uh, very much. And so even if it is transitory, it is uh, it, it can be important. The next thing I would say is, I, you know, I want to be an optimist in the economy. I see some great changes that are happening. I like the Fed's flexibility. The, uh, I like the flexibility that we've seen globally. You know, like when you look at Kurzarbeit in Germany, uh, that model, uh, helping them through hard times. Um, I, I, I like what, what I've seen, and I like to be optimistic. However, at the same time, if, if you ask me, I'm probably closer to the Darius Dale, closer to David Rosenberg, in terms of what I think are the risks going forward. Uh, I think that there is a great risk. It is greater uh, than people think of a relapse in growth uh, in the second half of 2021. Uh, and it's not necessarily the case that even though the Democrats control both houses of Congress and the White House, that we're going to see uh, the Democrats get a massive stimulus through. So either the consumer had better pick up the baton or you're going to see some problems uh, at some point the latter half of this year, maybe the first half of 2022. Uh, the last thing is I think that there are two black swans. I told you that, that you guys that. Uh, and uh, let me stop there before I, I, you know, if you guys have some questions and and then I'll tell you what my black swans are. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Chat, go ahead. Sure. I have um, a, just a, something to say, which is that, you know, Ed, you said that you're not working, you're not leaving to go work for the Fed, but some people in the audience are having a few doubts. Someone says, Ed, your name, it's actually Prius Omega, it says, Ed, your name is only one letter off from Fed. Coincidence? <laughs> that is good. <laughs> so um, so here's my black swans for let, you. Let me, let me ask yeah. a question real quick, because I, I'm really yeah. curious. As you, as you build up that deflation narrative, the transitory inflation narrative, eventually flipping into deflation, I'm curious, what are the key metrics that you're going to be watching uh, to see if that thesis is playing out, what would confirm the thesis, and what would be some disconfirming data points, uh, and over what time horizon as we roll forward? Yeah, that is that's a good question. I think that uh, you know the nexus of the chain is is about uh, wages and um, um, leading to consumer spending, uh, leading to a greater industrial production. Uh, and then earnings growth and so forth, and eventually more employment, and then that's a virtuous cycle. So right now we're in the point where wages are going up and consumer spending is going up, and then uh, supposedly it will lead to capital spending going up. Where we've seen a breakdown in past cycles is that people have said, uh, you know, actually we're gonna hold off, we're gonna see how much this uh, consumer spending and this wage growth goes on before we make the capital investments. 
and then we'll make the capital investments. And then, of course, growth waned and then capital investment. So what I'm looking for is that handoff from consumer spending to capital investment and the continuation of uh, that virtuous cycle of, uh, you know, wages going up, consumer spending going up on a durable basis without accumulation of debt, uh, capital spending going up and uh, earnings for companies going up and then more employment and then wages going up and the whole thing adding in that direction. And, and I've but, got a question. Uh, Sorry, what, what uh -huh. are you seeing in terms of CapEx? Are we seeing, so we're seeing consumer spending go up. Is the CapEx cycle, is that following? My understanding is there is some incipient moves that make me slightly optimistic, but uh, it's still too early to, to make a call. I mean, we're still at a very precarious moment in the reopening. So, I mean, when you think about it, uh, we, we're not fully vaccinated. There's no herd immunity or anything like that. Uh, you know, I was watching the FOMC. Everyone was at home. You know, they were there were probably like three people, three reporters who were at their studios. All the rest of the, the, the reporters who were talking to Jay Powell were in their houses. That's not normal. So we're not in a, a fully reopened economy. So anything that you, we think or we say is completely speculative. Yeah. Very curious to hear about these black swans, Ed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one black swan, and by the way, you know, I don't think this would be a good RVDB without uh, our touting some of our content on the on the the platform. One uh, thing that I've already touted is the the rumble in the jungle, Peter Bookvar versus David uh, Rosenberg, um, and in that video, I told them that I thought uh, the black swan was housing. One of the two black swans. Housing could be a black swan. Why? Because there are incipient signs that housing is rolling over. Um, you know, lumber prices have gone down. Mortgage applications have gone down. Uh, there, there are other things like that that could say that this uh, house price inflation is, is coming down. And so when Eric Rosengren is saying that we might taper MBS more, that's all part of a nexus that could uh, lead to house prices going into reverse in such a way that it creates some level of deleveraging. You know, if you're looking for wealth effects, uh, housing is one of the greatest places that you can find wealth effects. And if that goes into reverse in any way, then that would be very negative for, for growth in the economy. So that's black swan number one. Mm. Um, unfortunately, black swan number two is the virus. You know, I'm sure there are going to be lots of people in the comments saying, oh, can you can you stop talking about coronavirus? But the reality is, is, is that we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, there there are uh, virus variants that can evade uh, the the vaccines that we have at present. And uh, there are virus variants, as we've seen with the Delta variant, that are very contagious, much more contagious yeah. than the Alpha variant. Uh, which uh, started in Kent, uh, England. So yeah. there are opportunities. There are there is a black swan risk that there's a variant that is both able to evade, uh, um, you know, immunity, and and also to be infectious at the same time. And if that were to happen, 
we could go back into a sort of pseudo lockdown situation or the potential for economic uncertainty associated with that. Yeah, such an important point from a black swan perspective. And uh, I was joking with someone the other day when I said uh, the fact that we're sick of talking about the virus doesn't mean that the virus is done mutating. Uh, again, an open question whether you'll get the nightmare strain that has the infectiousness uh, and also the intensity, uh, but something to watch out for, something that certainly we see these variants popping up around the world. Very important to keep an eye on because of the potential economic impact if that were to happen. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that it's the so-called Nepal variant that people are talking about. Uh, th this is the one that that makes me think about the black swan. This is a variant that is basically the Indian variant with a uh, the addition of the South African variants uh, um, spike protein ability to evade uh, immunity for from vaccines. So when you combine those two together, it creates if it if in a, a population that's either unvaccinated or you know poorly vaccinated, uh, the ability for it to circulate very quickly and then evade vaccines as well. So yeah. you know there are negative scenarios for, from a vaccine perspective. We're not out of the pandemic completely. Um, going to Miami was was for me like my coming out of the of the pandemic, and you know I. I I, I loved it, but uh, hopefully that's the new normal. We'll see. Yeah. You know, you said something that was really interesting, talking about the referencing to touting content. Boy, I did an interview today uh, with a venture capitalist named uh, Yasmin Rizavi uh, from Spark Capital. Uh, and it's always a great feeling when you do what we do to interview someone uh, who says in a more eloquent way the thing that you've been thinking. Uh, and she was talking about the long-term durable impact that uh, the virus will have on the economy, not in terms of potential mutation risk, uh, potential recurrence risk, but the changes in nature to the structure of work itself. You mentioned before watching the Jay Powell, uh, Chairman Powell uh, news conference and how many reporters were at home or elsewhere doing these, these interviews from remote locations. I think it's really interesting. I think that this is like a World War II level event for our culture, for our society, when we're having this conversation with our grandchildren, I think it's going to be one of those moments where there was a before and there was an after. Uh, the nature of work has changed. Supply change has changed. Uh, the expectations that people have for the relationships with their employers have changed. I think this is the beginning of something that is durable and that will outlast, uh, hopefully, a virus that is not going to be a major factor, hopefully, uh, for much longer in the economy. Yeah, uh, let, let, let's hope that it won't be a factor in the economy, but it will be a factor in terms of changing our lifestyles. That's definitely my view as well. Yeah. Jack, any thoughts? Um, I don't know. I, I definitely think there are a lot of changes that I agree with, such as telemedicine. I don't think you're going to go to your doctor to get some sort of generic medication anymore. I think you'll just order it on right. you know, online. Um, I also think that... The, a real change is um, that there are people now who are unemployment, on unemployment, who are uh, making more money, receiving more money than they would at a low, at their old low wage jobs. And surprise, surprise, they would prefer to stay at home. Uh, I would prefer to stay at home too if, if I had that option. And I think that getting them to go back to work and you know companies like McDonald's or or, or other places, you know, uh, restaurants who've been used to, oh yeah, we'll just that our labor cost is eight dollars per hour. That could they could that could no longer be a thing. 
where I want to uh, challenge a little bit is the, I think that, you know, uh, Ash, you and I were in the Lower East Side last night getting some fried chicken, talking about what, what is going to be a post-ed RVDB, what, how would that even look like? So we're just uh, having a little fun time. Like, people are going out, um, you know, if you go out on the weekend and you want to go to a hot restaurant, it's impossible to get a reservation. Um, you know, there, there, there are vast swaths of land in the country where people are perhaps a slightly conservative and, you know, they have not been wearing masks since the summer, if at all. I think that even if this uh, virus is, you know, as, as the, even if the variant, variant is really, really bad, I still think that psychologically, um, I feel like a lot of uh, Americans and a lot of people have sort of moved on. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I agree. I've moved on. Uh, you know, uh, for me, it, it's over uh, by and large. Uh, you know, but at the margin, I'm going to be changed. I, I went out to a restaurant too last night, and it was one of these places that has uh, tables outside. I went to the outside tables. If uh, you, let's say it's like November, uh, what what would I do? Chances are, um, you know, I probably am not going to eat inside. I probably would, would order out. And so that, that's a change in my behavior uh, relative to before. And even if like nine times out of 10, I do the exact same thing that I did before, one time out of 10 is enough to make a significant impact. And I think that, uh, you know, companies that have low margins uh, when people start to change their behavior, you know, ten, you know, one person out of 10, it could be enough to yeah. have a sizable impact on that, that, that business. Right. Uh, here, I've got a prediction. Change, change, you know, change happens at the margin. Uh, by the way, I've totally moved on as well. I'm out without a mask. I'm double vaccinated. This is as vaccinated as I'm going to get. Uh, last night I was much more uh, worried about Jack killing me with the cholesterol, uh, levels at the <laughs> restaurant. We ate at. It was just like, piles of butter and like maple syrup on everything and waffles and chicken. It was amazingly good. Yeah, I've got a, uh, uh, so you're right that all the reporters, and I was uh, very surprised to see that all the reporters were calling in from Zoom and talking to the Fed chair via Zoom. I think in the next FOMC meeting, there are gonna be a lot more, if, if not every single one is gonna be in person. I mean, you know, there are teachers who have been, you know, sort of uh, taught remotely and it's just been an absolute disaster. And, you know, some, some of them who, you know, are really focused and really want to get the kids, it's frustrating because every single kid right. is, you can't see them, they're on the Zoom. And, you know, there are other people who are like, sort of used to like, oh, I'll go, I'll go to Hawaii. But I, I think that, you know, right. there, some people are going to have to come back home from Hawaii. Yeah, look, the truth is probably going to land somewhere in between. There's some use cases that work uh, for these technology-enabled uh, distance learning. Uh, it's hard to understand how uh, second or third graders are going to be able to learn meaningfully online. Uh, a lot of that is obviously the personal interaction and walking uh, little Johnny back to his seat when he gets crazy, right? Like, I mean, that's what teaching at small grades is like. It's a very challenging job. Uh, but I think for others, uh, look, the reality is you, uh, Ed, and I, we're here doing what we do, powered by this revolution, able to do it from our homes and uh, to do things that I think are innovative and interesting and make this show so fun and exciting to do. Yeah. By the way, someone said, don't worry, Ed leaving is just transitory. I got a pledge from uh, the, the people that be that, you know, hey, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll let me, you'll take me back if, uh, if, if it comes to that. All right, final question for our audience. I've copied and pasted all of these comments. If I make an NFT of these comments from this show, are you guys bidding? 
Oh man. Well, I like that. That's good. Yeah, definitely. But uh, I think Real Vision, uh, you know, they're, they're the ones who'd be selling the NFT. Am I right? Is it? Yeah. It's sure. very unclear. But the technology is, you know, from 2300, but the, the laws are very unclear. You know, I think I think Raul's got to be the one who's at the top of the ticket selling it. Gentlemen, uh, my my my. Uh, yeah, I mean, we don't want it to end. Close. I mean, we could, you know, we, no, we none of us want to end this. It's just this is the last <laughs> RVDB. Well, so I, I have two more. Uh, I'm going to tout my 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 last two appearances. Pavlina Cherneva, uh, who's going to tell us uh, about uh, the economy, the jobs market from an NMT's perspective, and then my well-touted David Rosenberg, Peter Bookbar interview. And then today, Those, Ed, your interview with Warren Mosler. And, and today's interview with Warren Mosler, which I might say, I think uh, is uh, the best uh, MMT interview that I've ever done uh, because, uh, you know, we, we got to see um, behind the curtain in terms of basically th there's a coercion there with the government. And Warren Mosler, he's not necessarily down with that coercion. Uh, it, but it, that's just the reality. I think that that was an interesting uh, observation from him. Yeah, very interesting in shifting the narrative there a little bit on what MMT is, what it means, what the politics around it are. Maybe you could talk to that a little bit, Ed, because it's such an important point. Yeah, so, I mean, here's my take. And I may have said this actually on uh, Twitter. I'm, I'm going to look and see how I put it on Twitter um, because I, that might be a good uh, jumping off point of uh for thinking about it. Uh, what I said is, is that I got three takeaways. Uh, the sense I got was no, Joe Biden is not doing MMT, okay? Uh, Joe Biden is a guy, from what Warren Mosler was saying, Joe Biden is a guy who wants to raise taxes on the rich. That's not MMT. MMT is telling you that when the private sector wants to net save, accommodate it. Don't raise taxes. So Joe Biden is definitely, definitely, definitely not doing MMT. Yeah. So, I, can I say that any more clearly? He's not doing MMT. That's yeah, number one. I think number in, uh, so sorry, go ahead. Number two is, is that you don't do MMT. When people say, is this guy doing MMT or is that gal doing MMT? No, BS. You don't do MMT. MMT is a framework. Uh, we, I have a, a mutual friend uh, with Ash, this guy, John Carney. Ash was even telling me that he went out at some point with Warren Moser and John Carney together. Now, John Carney's a guy who is uh, uh, the economics uh, head of Breitbart, <laughs> you know, a conservative uh, magazine. Uh, hello, he he's an MMTer. You don't have to believe in big government to be an MMTer. So you're not. It's not about doing MMT. It's about understanding the MMT framework and believing that that's a way in which the current fiat currency uh, system works. Yeah. Uh, I have two other things, but Jack, you wanted to get in there. Oh, and, and by the way, that. I would just say nobody's ever accused John Carney of being a socialist. Exactly. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know a lot of. Uh, anyway, um, I was going to say, Ed, that in uh, Stephanie Kelton's uh, book, The Deficit Myth, I think the first myth that she wants to dispel is that the government is not a household. If you are a monetary sovereign, you can spend more than you take in because you can create currency out of thin air. I would say that perhaps uh, what you're saying is that Joe Biden, he acts as, in a framework as if the government is sort of like a household. 
in that you, oh, do, yeah, pay, you do have to pay the Reaper, even though MMT says you don't. And, and the way that uh, that Warren Moser puts it is that's a political constraint. You know, the reality is, is no one's ever going to, uh, I, I mean, the slippery slope of, hey, wait a minute, I can just spend and spend. Uh, you know, that's a, a, a road to inflation. And uh, and so for political reasons, people uh, stop that. They, they put a constraint on that. But the, that constraint is artificial. It's political. Um, and, and that was my third point that I, I put down uh, here. I said the political constraints to thinking about policy through an MMT lens are underestimated. That's my that was my last takeaway from what he said. Um, ultimately, I just think that there's a lot of confusion still over what MMT is, that it's a framework and it's not a set of policies. When people talk about MMT, usually they're talking about, you know, big government or lots of spending, you know, lots of deficits. But you can do all those things and, and, and not understand MMT and not have an MMT framework. And you can also do the opposite, as John Carney would probably do, uh, and not do those things and still look at it from an MMT perspective. So that was those were my takeaways from the interview. Ash, I don't know if you see this, but there's a question I think would be a perfect way to, to end uh, on a high note, which Tom Tom asks, uh, Ed, a question for you. What were your most mem memorable moments with Ash and Jack? Yeah, that, that's a good question. My most memorable moments. Uh, my, my, people don't want to hear this, but my most memorable moments were asking Ash and, uh, about soccer and making him a Tottenham Hotspur fan. <laughs> uh, right before this, when Ash and I were talking, like at one o'clock, we were talking about, um, uh, we, we got to get a soccer reference in there because I, I, I tweeted this thing about Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, and, uh, it, you know, he was at a news conference and they tried to give him some Coke and he uh, batted it away and said, no, I want water. And immediately Coke's share price went down like, you know, one and a half billion dollars. So I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Jack, any favorite memories you'd like to contribute? Oh, man. I, I think, you know, when you do something every day, it's just like every, every day is a memory. But I, I just think the experience of building the daily briefing from nothing into a show. Um, you know, Ash, I remember a call with you when you uh, said, hey, man, we've got we to do this opening segment. And I'm like, what is this opening segment? And it was basically we were reading you know, data about the coronavirus, which was very grim. And that sort of morphed into what was then called the Real Vision Daily Briefing intro. Um, so then, I, yeah, I remember, you know, our morning calls where, you know, we were like me, Ash and Ed and we were like, what's on your radar? And you, Ed, you had like 11 stories. You want to talk about this? You want to talk about that? You want to talk about this? Um, and yeah, now, now here we are. So it's just been a great journey. What, what about you, Ash? I think my favorite memory for, with Ed is every day around three o'clock before I'm about to go on air with Ed, there's that tension I get in the pit of my stomach that says, you better study up because you're going on air with Ed Harrison and you need to be able to hit the ball back over the net. You know, the, the thing that I'm missing, I wish I could have it, is is that great T-shirt that I could, un, you know, zip down and open up <laughs> that, you know, that, that one of our viewers sent me. Because to me, that's representative of, of what Real Vision is, is the rapport that we have with one another and yeah. that we've developed with, uh, with, with our viewers, with our listeners. And I just hope that, uh, I know, actually, what am I saying? 
that it will continue even without me uh, being on RVDB. And I look forward to watching and uh, and listening and uh, and just wish you guys all the best. Well, we want you. We want to see you in the YouTube comments. Yes, you you will see me in the YouTube comments. Yes. Okay, great. And any final thoughts before we go? None. Just uh, I'm going to go up and uh, grab some alcohol. <laughs> you know, this is truly the end of an era, uh, not just uh, for us here at Real Vision, but I think it's important to point out for the viewers who have been with us every step of the way, um, overwhelming uh, comments today. And, and we just thank you so much uh, for watching us. Obviously, it's the reason we do what we do. So thank you very much for joining us on this journey. And thank you, Ed Harrison. Thank you, guys. And uh, kisses uh, to everyone. Love you guys. Thanks for watching, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.